Good morning. Our scripture passage today is from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 18, if you want to turn there in your Bible. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 18. But before we do that, I want to give a little background, a little context so that we can understand what we'll hear. It's important to remember that reading any of the letters in the New Testament is like listening in on one side of a telephone conversation or seeing one side of a text exchange. You only really get half the story. What we're reading is Paul's response to issues and questions and problems that had come to his attention. And he writes back as kind of a spiritual Dr. Phil, a spiritual advisor, uh, to give God's solution to some of the serious practical problems that were going on among the Christians in first century Ephesus. As I mentioned last week, this church was uh, in that ancient city was a, was a real mixed bag of people from different races and cultures. Uh, uh, and that ethnic mix, that, that clash of cultures was creating a lot of tension that we'll explore in just a minute. And Paul is bold enough to suggest that the solution to this problem of these, this interpersonal conflict was to be found in the peace of Christ. The peace of Christ. So listen for the repetition of that word peace as I read. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcised, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself of one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Amen. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to Him. You know, if you ever buy a house, there's one important thing to remember. Once you sign all the documents and close the sale, that house and everything in it now belongs to you, including all the problems and defects that that house may contain. If there's water in the basement, that water is now your problem. If there's mold behind the drywall, that mold is now your mold. If there are frayed electrical lines rubbing against each other, you know, between the studs, that's now something you have to worry about. If the furnace blows or the pipes freeze, that's now on you. The sale of the house doesn't magically fix any of the problems that that house may have. The new owner has to take responsibility for what's there, good and bad. And if he's a smart owner and not some kind of slumlord, then they'll begin to address the problems at hand because they want to make that house into the best home possible. That's kind of the way it is when a person becomes a Christian. When you give your life to Christ and surrender your heart to him as your Lord and Savior, basically you transfer the deed of your life 
to him. God is your new owner. You belong to him. And one of the ways the Bible describes and tries to explain this mystery of salvation is that it says God bought you. He, he purchased you. That's what the word redeem means. It's a financial word. It means to buy back. The Apostle Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 1, 18. For you know it was not with such parable things as silver and gold that you were redeemed from your empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ. The shed blood of Christ was the, was the purchase price for your salvation. His blood shed on the cross was, was the sticker price to pay for your sins and mine. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19, You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. God has purchased you, and you belong to him. That's the transaction of salvation that Paul describes in the first part of chapter 2, where he says in verse 8, For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So if you're the house and God is your new owner, God bought you with all your problems. God bought you knowing that you are far from perfect and you are in need of some serious renovation. You see, your previous owner did not do a very good job of upkeep. There are closets of attitude that need to be fumigated. There are cracks in the moral foundation that need repair. There are some behavioral issues. Well, they may just need a new cone of paint, but other areas of your life may need to be completely gutted down to the studs. There are things that maybe need to be totally torn out and replaced. And this process of God making repairs in your life is called discipleship. Discipleship is this lifelong process of God working in you to make you into the kind of person he wants you to be. The Holy Spirit is sort of like the contractor who comes in to do the work, sometimes with a, with a fine paintbrush and sometimes with a sledgehammer. Robert Boyd Munger describes this so well in his little book, My Heart, Christ's Home, and I'd recommend that to you if you've never read it. So just because you become a Christian, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden, magically, all your problems disappear and you instantly become perfect. Far from it. All the problems you had before giving your life to Christ will be there after you give your life to Christ. If you were a gossip before coming to Christ, you may still be a gossip afterwards. And God's going to want to work on that. If you were selfish and insensitive or greedy before Christ, those are patterns he's going to want to change. If you, if you struggled with guilt or anxiety or sexual issues before becoming a Christian, those problems don't magically disappear the day after you become a believer. The main difference is now you have a new owner. God may choose to instantly heal something in your life. I believe he can do that. And there are times where I know God does instantly heal someone of an addiction or of some long-standing wound or, or struggle in their life. But for the most part, what I see is that the Holy Spirit works day by day, one room at a time, if you will, to begin to change us from the inside out. And it takes time. And that's why discipleship is a lifelong process. Becoming more and more like Jesus is a lifelong pursuit. 
That's why I kind of like the theme of the upcoming women's retreat in April called Under Construction. Uh, that describes this. We are all a work in progress. So go back to all these brand new Christians coming together in this little Christian community in Ephesus. They, they are new to Christ and they bring all their problems with them. All the broken places in their lives, all the ways that they have sinned and rebelled against God, all the ungodly patterns and beliefs and behaviors and prejudices that they picked up in the world before surrendering their lives to Jesus, they bring all of that with them into this infant church. Having a new owner in Jesus didn't instantly make all their rough edges disappear. So when all these imperfect people come together, you know there are going to be problems. Paul is going to address a lot of their broken places in this letter. But their first big problem is something that has the potential to tear them apart, to poison or, or wreck the church before it even gets off the ground. They've got to look at where they find their basic identity, where they find their basic identity, because before coming to Christ, they found their basic identity in their ethnic heritage, and that has created huge problems. Now, it's hard for us to understand the intense antagonism and prejudice that existed between Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews, in the first century. To do so, we really have to go back and look at the root cause. We are all sinful. And one of the main consequences of sin is a sense of alienation. The intent of the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in, in Genesis chapter 3 is to show us that we're all sinful by nature. We all experience the sense of alienation in at least two ways. First, Adam and Eve were alienated from God. Their once intimate relationship with God evaporated. It was broken, it was shattered because of their sin. And as a consequence of that brokenness, they, they felt a sense of shame and fear over what they had done. And that sense of shame or fear drove them to try and hide from God in the garden. They felt alone, they felt fearful, they felt vulnerable and powerless. Their vertical relationship with God, their creator, was fractured and broken. They were alienated from God. That's in verses 7 and 8 of Genesis 3. The second thing that happened was that Adam and Eve became alienated from each other. Adam and Eve had this perfect marriage of man and woman, and all of a sudden that perfect union was shattered. Out of fear, they turn on each other and are all too eager to point the finger of blame at each other for, you know, who sinned first? Well, she did. No, he did. Basically, they throw each other under the bus before God. Their horizontal relationship was fractured and broken alienated in their vertical relationship with God and therefore alienated in their horizontal relationship with each other. That alienation, that's the spiritual death Paul talked about as our human condition in the first part of Ephesians 2. Every problem we face today in life is simply an outworking of these basic alienations. In our vertical relationship, we're alienated from God and therefore we experience alienation from each other in our horizontal relationships. And then we act out uh, uh, of this sense of fear, this sense of loneliness, this sense of powerlessness and vulnerability. We're trying to protect ourselves 
because we're not connected with God the way we should be. In trying to protect ourselves, we end up hurting and wounding each other. In the Old Testament, God begins to reveal his plan to reverse this, his plan for our redemption so that we could replace alienation with reconciliation. His plan was to heal first our our vertical relationship with God and then to straighten out our horizontal relationships with each other. And he chose to use the people of Israel as the vehicle through which the salvation would come. That's why Israel was called the chosen, God's chosen people, not because they were anything special, because, but because they had been chosen for this very special task through receiving the law of Moses and the prophets and through providing a, a family lineage for the coming Messiah. Israel was supposed to be God's messengers to the whole world. God says through the, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 42, 6, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people and a light for the nations. A light for the nations. That was Israel's calling. But what happened was that the ancient Israelites took their privileges before God as a sign that they were superior to other peoples. They took that that good law of Moses and used it to wall themselves off from other nations. That's the attitude Jesus confronted during his preaching ministry. Because instead of obeying their calling to shine as a light to the world, the religious leaders had settled for this superficial conformity to the Mosaic law as evidence of their superiority to the Gentiles around them. And so rather than admit their failure to keep the law of Moses and then confess their need for a Savior so that then the Gentile nations might recognize their own need for a Savior, they saw the Mosaic law as a mark of their own righteousness. And so then they looked down upon all those outside the borders of ancient Israel. This misuse of of their religious heritage created a, a, a tremendous alienation between Jews and Gentiles. No iron curtain, no Berlin wall, no racial prejudice, no apartheid of today is more absolute than the division between Jew and Gentile in antiquity. The animosity that the Jews of Paul's day had for Gentiles was extreme in every way. It was even built into their temple. There was literally a stone wall in the Jerusalem temple which separated the court of the Gentiles from the inner courts into which only Jewish worshipers could enter. Archaeologists discovered a sign on that wall with a warning written in both Greek and Latin for Gentiles to keep out on pain of death. Paul himself had narrowly escaped death two or three three years earlier when a false rumor had been spread that he had violated the sanctity of the holy place by taking a Gentile into one of the into the inner courts. That's in Acts 21.8. This tension between Jews and Gentiles was very real. And so you know that all the first followers of Jesus were Jewish. And the first big problem they had was over their ethnic identity. It happened right after Pentecost in Acts 6, verse 1, where it says, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. The Grecian Jews were Jews who spoke Greek. 
the Jews were born in other countries, but they happened to be in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost, and they were some of the very first converts. And so they stayed on in Jerusalem to help spread the word about Jesus. The Hebraic Jews, they were the locals. This was their hometown, and they spoke the local language, Aramaic. And so imagine how these Jewish believers from Jerusalem felt. At first they were caught up in the excitement of this new thing God was doing in their midst, but very soon... Their old prejudices came out. If these outsiders are going to stay, couldn't they at least learn the language? Couldn't they at least try to fit in? And they're eating all our food. Aren't they ever going home? It's amazing that the very first recorded church fight was not over doctrine. It was over prejudice. It was about ethnic identity, which threatened the basic unity of the church. Now take that tension and magnify it about a hundred times and you begin to sense the tension that existed between the Jews who were followers of Jesus and the Gentiles, these non-Jewish folks who were also now following Christ. Jews had gone on for centuries knowing, just knowing for sure that the Gentiles, the non, they were not God's people. They thought that anyone who was not a Jew was little better than an animal. The Jews were God's chosen people. But the gospel of Jesus changed all that. And the apostles started preaching to the Gentiles, telling them that they too could be part of God's chosen people. So picture, if you will, a church in the Middle East today where, where ethnic Jews and Arabs or Israelis and Palestinians could come, who had come to know Christ could come together to worship. The old suspicions, the old fears and wounds and hatreds would be hard to overcome. Uh, if you can imagine that situation, you can, can begin to understand what it was like for many in the first century. Paul starts this passage by outlining the many ways that, that they were looked down upon by the Jewish Christians. The Gentiles were, were uncircumcised, which, meant, which was an insult, because it meant that they had no Jewish heritage. They were separate, excluded, foreigners, without hope, without God. They are definitely on the outside looking in with a thick wall of prejudice which was meant to keep them there. But Paul says, no, that's not how it's going to be in the church. That's not the way of Christ. This is some dry rot that has to be torn out right away. Otherwise, there is no hope for the future of the Christian church. F.F. Bruce writes that the greatest triumph of the gospel in the apostolic age was that it overcame this long-standing estrangement and enable Jew and Gentile to become truly one in Christ. So how's this change going to happen? How can people overcome centuries of, of ethnic and prejudice and, and hatred? Well, if this were happening today, conventional wisdom would say, well, you've got to celebrate diversity. Let's learn to appreciate different cultures and races. Let's have a big potluck where everybody comes and brings food from their own ethnic background and wears clothes from their own ethnic tradition and will sing songs in all the different languages. Well, those all might be nice things to do. But this passage is not about that kind of approach at all. It's really not about racial reconciliation. It's about Christ's exaltation. Because Paul says the secret to bringing these groups together, the secret to overcoming their deeply rooted animosity and prejudice is not to focus on diversity, but to focus on their essential unity. To help them see that what they have in common in Christ is greater 
than any of these worldly distinctions that might separate them. What they have in common is that Jesus is the one who brought them peace with God. They were all far off. They were all equally separated from God. And Jesus is the one who overcame that alienation caused by sin. He was the one who reunited them, reconciled them back to God. This vertical relationship has now been restored. What they share is that they all have peace with God through Jesus Christ. They all belong to him, and that's where they need to find their basic identity. They belong to Christ, and that is more important than their ethnic heritage. Those who have experienced peace with God must have peace with each other. That's now the the vertical relation. Now that the vertical relationship has been restored, it's time to work on that horizontal relationship. Instead of celebrating their diverse ethnic identities, Paul is asking them to lay that aside, to lay aside their ethnic identity and to hold up this new identity that they have as a child of Christ. To leave their ethnic identity at the door if it's going to be a barrier to fellowship in the church of Jesus Christ. Because Christ has something bigger for them. Something more important than their DNA or their family background. Because they belong to Jesus, old loyalties have to go. They have to let go of the things that they used to use to prop up their identity in the past in order to grab on to this new identity in Christ. God is doing something even bigger than racial reconciliation. He's creating a new way for people to relate to each other based on his peace in their hearts. Verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. I wish I had more time to go into this this morning, but I want to end by turning the spotlight onto us. The truth is, even though we may belong to Christ, we bring all our brokenness into the church just like they did in Ephesus. Our issues may not be exactly the same, but we have our own relationship struggles. We fight and bicker, we criticize, we tear people down, we hold on to grudges, we cling to our prejudices, we look down on other people, we judge, we avoid those that we don't want to rub elbows with, we patronize, we feel superior. On our own, we have a hard time living out Jesus' command to love one another. Jesus wants his church to be like an oasis of peace in this conflict-ridden world. And it begins for us exactly the way it began for our ancient brothers and sisters. Our basic identity has to be rooted in the fact that we all belong to Jesus. That he's our owner. He is the one who brought us peace with God. We're all the same. And as they say, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. No one is superior or inferior to anyone else. We are all on the same level and we all belong to Jesus. If we can see ourselves that way, and find great inner security in that identity, then and only then can we see others truly as brothers and sisters in the family of God. You know, I've had the privilege of traveling to visit a number of our 
global, global mission partners, to, to India, to Africa, to South America. And I've always been amazed at how instantly I can bond with people across some pretty severe racial and language and cultural barriers because we share this deeper bond in Jesus Christ. And that's the way it should be. So why is it harder closer to home? Is there any place where you're harboring prejudice or, or a dislike against other believers? Any attitude of superiority? Any of thought of, you know, well, I don't like those people? If Christ has bought you, brought you peace with God, you've got to lay that other stuff aside and unite around this new identity in Christ. Because you're not black or white or Asian, you're not from Brooklyn or Texas or California, you're not Italian or Swedish or Latino, you are Christ, and he is your peace. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, may you help us to turn the spotlight on ourselves, our own broken places, our own prejudices, and our own ways in which we wall off other people, we separate ourselves from other people, even in the church. There might even be someone two rows in front of us or five seats to the left of us or whatever, Lord, that we have some kind of a problem with. And it might be a problem that we need to address, to realize that we need to lay aside all those former things and embrace this new identity that we have in you, that we belong to you. Thank you, Lord, that you are our peace.